Some of you might know my father-in-law, Ted, is a retired pastor and minister. So I shared my sermon notes with him, and I told him that I was a little bit nervous about preaching this morning. So he encouraged me like no one else could or would. He said, God has spoken through the mouth of a donkey, so he can speak through you. So here's my humble attempt. You to man, you to man, or as we might say a little more properly as a Presbyterian, you are the man. Did you know that phrase could be traced back to the 1950s, to the jazz clubs? It was used then as it's used now to recognize someone for a great performance or to show your approval or support. But when Nathan said these words to David in 2 Samuel chapter 12, he was certainly not showing his support. Nathan was a prophet who was sent by God to, conf to confront David, the king of Israel. Nathan tells David a story about a powerful rich man who took away a precious and dearly loved young lamb from a poor man. When David heard the story, scripture says his anger was greatly kindled against the man and he says to Nathan, I swear by the living God, any man who would do a thing like that should be put to death. And Nathan turns to David and says, you are the man. Here's the story. It was spring, the time when kings go out to war. But David sent his trusted general Joab to lead the people of God in the fight against the Ammonites while he stayed behind in the city. Late one afternoon, David got up from his couch and he took a walk on the roof. David was lying around his house when he should have been out with his men. He had too much time on his hands. And as you've probably heard your grandmother quote from Proverbs 16, 27, idle hands are the devil's workshop. Well, the devil went to work on David. From the rooftop, David saw a very beautiful woman taking a bath. David inquired about her and was told her name was Bathsheba, and she was the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Second Samuel 11.4 says, So David sent messengers to her, and he took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. David not only lusted after a woman who was not his wife, but he abused his power and authority as king to take advantage of her. A short time later, Bathsheba sends a message to David saying that she was pregnant. David may have thought there would be no consequence for his sin. Now David has a real problem. He had to find a way to cover this up, to make this go away. Put yourself in David's place. What thoughts might be going through your mind? How can this be? I never meant for this to happen. It was just one indiscretion. If this gets out, my life will be ruined. So David hatched a plan to have Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, return from the battlefield so he could go home to be with his wife. But Uriah was an honorable man. He refused to go home while the men of Israel were camping in the open field. David even tried getting Uriah drunk, but Uriah would not go home. David was desperate. He had to clean this up and keep his sins from being discovered. So David sends Uriah back to the battlefield with a note telling Joab the commander to set Uriah at the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be killed. 
Joab did as instructed and put Uriah on the front lines. Scripture says the enemy gained advantage over the men of Israel, and archers shot and killed some of the men, including Uriah. David's plan had succeeded. His secret would be safe. Look at the progression. What began with slothfulness and laziness turned into lust and adultery and eventually led to a complicated scheme of murder. At point after point where David could have turned from his sin, he chose to move deeper and deeper into it. After Uriah's death, David may have thought that he was in the clear, that he had covered his tracks and would avoid discovery. However, 2 Samuel 11 ends with these words, but the things that David did displeased the Lord. This verse has huge implications on our passage this morning. Psalm 32 is David's psalm of confession and repentance. You see, David's sin was not against the people of Israel or against Bathsheba or Uriah. No, David's sin, like our sin, was against God. And David was unable to hide from God. God was displeased with David, but he didn't abandon him. God did not leave him in this state. God sent Nathan to uncover David's transgressions so that God could cover David with his loving mercy and grace. How could David fall into such sin? How could he be so weak and vulnerable? Because David was like us. He was born into sin, into a fallen world, and with a tendency to turn from God and seek his own desires. Sin was a part of his very nature. David didn't set out to commit murder, but his refusal to deal with his sin took him down a path of self-destruction. And with each step, he compounded his problems by trying to cover up his sin rather than turning from it. You and I have the same struggles. Because of our sin nature, we'll continue to disobey God. The question is, what will we do in response to our disobedience? You see, in many ways, the cover-up is the real problem. How many times have we read or heard the news reports of a prominent business person or politician who fell into disgrace, not so much because of what they did, but because of their attempts to cover up their actions? They may have gotten away with the infraction, but they falsified documents. They committed perjury. They lied under oath. The cover-up was worse than the deed, and it led to their downfall. What did Adam and Eve do immediately after eating the forbidden fruit? Genesis 3 says, And their eyes were open, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Then, when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Adam and Eve tried to cover up their guilt and shame and hide from, from God. We are no different. Like Adam and Eve and like David, we, we try to disguise and cover up our sin because we don't want anyone to know how despicable we are. This deception can take many forms. We make excuses for our sin and say things like, I only got angry at you because you fill in the blank. In what ways do you turn your sin into someone else's fault? Or we redefine our sin as acceptable behavior, thinking it's not that bad. After all, no one's getting hurt. Danny asked several 
people this week, how do we hide or cover our sin? The number one answer, technology. Think about that. We use our cell phones, laptops, tablets, and a TV to access movies, music, the news, blogs, social media, games, texting, and on and on and on. How can we possibly reflect on our sinful thoughts and behavior when we're constantly distracted by technology? Or, and this is particularly true of me, we tend to generalize our sin and focus on grace. I don't want to confess specific sin because I don't want to admit, even to myself, some of the things that I think and do. But what does Scripture say about sin? 1 John 1, 8 says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Not only do we lie to ourselves, but we are deceived by the devil when he tells us that God doesn't want to hear our confession or that God won't forgive us for some specific sin. So we deceive ourselves and we deceive those around us. But what is the result? In Psalm 32, verse 3 and 4, David says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Three weeks ago, I decided to clean out an overgrown area in our yard. The forecast was for temperatures to be in the mid to upper 90s. I got an early start, but the project took a lot longer than I expected. By the time I was finished, I was soaked. I was developing a headache. I felt terrible. I came into the house and I took a cold shower, but I couldn't cool off. The veins on my forehead were bulging and throbbing with each heartbeat. I laid down on the bed under the ceiling fan and just continued to sweat. I was overheated, I was exhausted, and I was wiped out for the rest of the day. When I think about being under that oppressive summer sun and heat, all day and all night, with no escape and no relief, it gives me a sense of the weight of God's hand upon David. God was displeased with David, but rather than giving up on him, God pursued David and made him miserable. Earlier this year, Phil took us through the book of Jonah. Remember how God pursued Jonah? God brought great calamity upon him and his shipmates in an attempt to get Jonah's attention. We see this repeated throughout Scripture. Men and women rebel against God, and then they have to endure his punishment until they finally confess and repent. Unfortunately, this is a theme for our lives too. But we need to remember that God's punishment is not mean-spirited. It is a way that he shows his love to us. If he didn't love us, he would just let us go. He would give us over to our sinful passions and desires. Thankfully, even the guilt and shame we feel is the gracious and merciful hand of God leading us to the point of uncovering and confessing our sins. And this is what happened when Nathan confronted David. David realized he could not hide his sin from God, and he says, I have sinned against the Lord. In Psalm 32, verse 5, David said, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. David comes clean, and he exposes himself to God, uncovering his many sins. 
in this confession, David uses an interesting literary device called chiasm, which is a sequence of words or ideas presented and then repeated in reverse order. This chiastic structure is often used in scripture to draw the reader's attention to some specific thought or point. Look at how David uses it here with three different words to describe his sin. David acknowledged his sin. He did not cover up his iniquity. He confessed his transgressions, and God forgave the iniquity of his sin. See the pattern? Sin, iniquity, transgression, iniquity, and sin. David uses this order and repetition to bring sharp focus to his offense and to the depth of God's mercy and grace. David is very precise with his choice of words. Each of these words has a very specific meaning in the Hebrew language. First, the word sin is from the Hebrew word kata'a, which means to miss the mark. It's an archery term. If an archer were shooting an arrow at a target, he would not only miss the bullseye, he would miss the entire target. As Paul says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short or miss the mark of the glory of God. What is the mark? It is the law of God. 1 John 3.4 says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Even though we may try to keep God's law, when we fail to keep it perfectly, or we miss the mark, we are guilty of sin. Where did David miss the mark? It began with his staying in Jerusalem while his men went out to war. Second, David confessed his transgressions. Transgressions is translated from the Hebrew word pesha, and it means a willful act of disobedience or intentionally breaking God's law. In Romans 4.15, Paul says, For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. So when David confessed his transgression, he acknowledged his willful and intentional breaking of God's law and his deserving of God's wrath. Adultery and murder are clear examples of David's transgressing God's law. Third, David said he did not cover his iniquity. How does iniquity differ from sin and transgression? Iniquity comes from the Hebrew word avon, which means to bend, twist, or distort. It is the act of twisting or distorting God's law. Iniquity is often used in a reference to a wicked act, immoral conduct, or practices that are especially offensive to God. Iniquity is understood to be much worse than breaking God's law or missing the mark. And David's iniquity was his covering up his sins and transgressions. His cover-up scheme and refusal to repent was twisted and distorted. It was wicked, and it was offensive to God. So what happens when David acknowledged his sin, uncovered his iniquity, and confessed his transgression? The end of verse 5 says, The Lord forgave the iniquity of his sin. Or to put it another way, God forgave the wickedness or the sinfulness of David's sin. David knows the hardness of our hearts and our reluctance to repent. That's why he instructs us in verse 8 and 9, Be not like the horse or the mule which must be curbed by the bit or bridle, or it will not stay near you. These animals do not follow willingly. They must be controlled. In the same way, we are a stubborn and stiff-necked people. We rebel against God, and we follow our own desires. So 
that when we fall into sin, God tells us to be quick to confess and repent, for in turning to God, we find peace with him. Look at the contrast between verse 3, where David says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, and verse 5, where he says, I acknowledged my sin, I confessed my transgressions, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. His silence was leading to decay and death. His confession and repentance led to forgiveness. Confession may not be pleasant, but David makes it clear it's our only solution. In his books, Beyond Doubt and Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, the former president of Calvin Theological Seminary, Cornelius Plantinga Jr., says this about confessing sin. The problem is that sin is like garbage. You don't want to let it build up. Recalling and confessing our sin is like taking out the garbage. Once is not enough. You want to do it regularly because taking out the garbage is an extremely healthy thing to do. Confession and repentance are prerequisites for forgiveness. Hear this assurance from 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he, that is God, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a promise. God not only forgives our sins, he cleanses us of all our unrighteousness, washing away our sins and restoring our relationship with him. Yes, we need to take out our garbage. David opens the psalm in verse 1 and 2 with these words. Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Following his confession, David found he was no longer under the heavy hand of God. He was cradled in the loving hands of his father. David was no longer lying to himself and to God, attempting to cover up sin. He was enjoying the blessing and peace of knowing his sins were truly covered. God removed the feeble cover that David was hiding under. God removed the great weight of shame and guilt, and God covered David's sin. When we confess and repent, God in his mercy is faithful to cover our sins too. The phrase, blessed is the one whose sin is covered, can also be translated, blessed is the one for whom God carries the burden of sin, or for whom God bears the punishment of sin. How can God do this? God is just, so sin must be punished. He can't just ignore our sin. So Jesus Christ, the perfect, sinless son of God, offered himself as an ultimate sacrifice. Jesus carried the burden for our sin. He bore our punishment. Through him, our sins are truly covered. Your sins and my sins. In verse 2, David said, Blessed is the man in whom the Lord counts no iniquity. No iniquity. No transgression, no sin. The devil would convince us that we are worthless sinners without hope. But God sees us as precious sons and daughters without sin. The father looks at us and sees the perfect and sinless image of his son, Jesus. We are covered, completely covered by the righteousness of Christ. When we claim that truth for ourselves, we know what it means to be blessed to be truly happy, content, and at peace. 
As Phil said when he preached on Psalm 1, we try to find happiness and contentment in people, in possessions, and in our circumstances, but we will never find happiness in the created. We are blessed and we find true happiness when we realize that we are forgiven, that our sins are covered, that God does not count our iniquity against us. We are blessed because God doesn't see us as worthless sinners, missing the mark, breaking his commandments, or bending and twisting his law. David closes this psalm in verses 10 and 11 with words of encouragement. He reminds us that the steadfast love of God surrounds those who trust in him. Because of his steadfast love, we can uncover or bear our sins through confession and repentance and let him cover us with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is the good news of the gospel. In response, let us join with David saying, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us a sense of freedom to uncover, to confess and repent, because you already know our sins, so we're not truly hiding anything from you. And Lord, give us the assurance that you have already covered us with the righteousness of your Son, Jesus. We know this truth with our heads. Help us to know it with our hearts. Amen.